Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 17. After months of frenzied work together, I had a gripe to share with Rue. Yo, let me ask you something. Have you listened to Volume 2? Yes, Rue said sarcastically. No, I mean, have you listened to one of the copies? Like, really listened to one of them? Nah, not really. Just sort of off and on when I play it for people. Why? What's up? Dog, the quality is fucking terrible, I said. Rue denied it in disbelief. I'm serious, man. I don't know what your boy did, but it sounds like he had the levels on the songs all the way to the top, and now it's distorted. I gave Rue specific places in the CD the poor quality was the most evident. As he listened to each one, his outbursts of shit would get louder and more aggressive. Fuck, man, he said. I've given out at least a few hundred of these pieces of shit. I know. No one has brought up the quality to you? I asked. Like one or two people, maybe, but I thought they were just being dicks. Nah, it's real, I said, but as I told him, I had a plan. Rue had a trip to North Carolina scheduled just around the same time I finished the last song for Volume 2. We figured that we could rush a bit and have the CD ready for him to bring home and distribute to anyone that would listen. Calling Bro Rab would have been easy, but to try something new, we got Rue's friend, who was a little brother associate, to host the mixtape instead. We hoped that it would help my music reach other ears, and although that may have happened, something was wrong with the way it was recorded while he mixed it. We were rushed, so we didn't even listen to the master with any real scrutiny until a quarter of them were on the streets. I couldn't get them back, so I needed a solution. I also couldn't, in good conscience, let all my hard work go to waste. But I also couldn't let the subpar quality of Volume 2 represent my music or our brand. I'd gotten into the habit of writing as much as I could, even if it was just to other rappers' instrumentals. As quickly as I was able to, I headed back to the studio to record three new freestyles, all containing some of the craftiest and cockiest lyrics I had ever written. I felt indestructible, and I wasn't going to let a shit-quality mixtape kill my vibe. Aside from the freestyles, I'd also just finished writing what I still believe to be one of the best songs I've ever recorded, Cruise Control. The song was produced by my friend Ill Phil from Durham, and it was a different vibe from the I'm the Best Rapper songs that dominated my repertoire. I remember working on it sitting outside one Sunday. I was on the corner of Crown Street and Kingston Avenue in Crown Heights. The sun was out, the temperature was almost utopian, and each lyric I wrote flowed out of my brain in near-perfect fashion. I crafted a chorus, three verses, a bridge, and even a singing portion to complement the hook. I knew who I wanted to sing it and how it would sound. When I caught Rue walking to the local bodega shortly before his trip to NC, I made him sit down while I quietly rapped the words and hummed the accompanying melody after first playing him the beat from my iPod. He loved it and I knew it felt right. As plans of how to move past Volume 2 formed in my head, I knew that Cruise Control would be the perfect addition to what would be known as I'm Not Him The Mixtape Volume 2.1. We had our friend Fuse flip the Volume 2 cover from white on black to black on white and put a large 2.1 on the front in red. I went back to Bro Rab, expressed my urgency to release this version as fast as I could, and he sent me back the finished copy in less than a week. Learning from our mistakes, we listened to 2.1 from cover to cover, paying close attention to every detail. Now we were truly ready to follow up Volume 1 with little evidence of the quality flub. 
2.1 was moving. We ran out of a few thousand and got requests for more. Rue had them in barbershops in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and High Point, North Carolina. Our favorite Soho clothing store, Pulse, began giving the CD out with each purchase, and when we walked in a few weeks later to check on their supply, it was playing as weekend customers shopped. I headed home to Durham a month after the release of 2.1 and was stopped twice by associates and friends of friends who let me know how much they loved the CD. At a gas station near my high school, a guy I knew from the local music scene brought me over to his car so that he could turn the key and prove to me on the spot that it was all he was listening to. The feedback was so positive that we wound up giving out close to 10,000 copies. Sure, it was free, but we would have never pressed so many if there was no demand. We knew in our hearts that our time was coming. We reached out to anyone who helped us create or move the CD to thank and send them a Jimmy Joshua t-shirt. We did the same for local DJs in North Carolina, which regardless of our current location was our home base. This was all Rue's brainchild and he constantly stressed to me that we needed to work our relationships. As the first glimpse of social media became prominent, we used MySpace to connect with people. We each spent countless nights friend requesting DJs, artists, and slutty internet models who were all MySpace friends with countless sex-thirsty rap fans. But we weren't there for the butt cheeks, we were there for the exposure. As DJs from other regions accepted our requests, we would message them to ask if we could send them a free CD, which was always accompanied by a Jimmy Joshua T. On occasion, I'd get requests from other rappers that were looking to network. I collaborated on two songs with a rapper from Connecticut and got a friend request from a skinny, teenage rapper from Pittsburgh I had never heard of named Wiz Khalifa. When I accepted, he messaged me to let me know that he dug my music. I replied thinking nothing of it and told him we should collab. I never got a response, but you know how that story ended. Or if you're not a rap fan, Google Wiz Khalifa. Every few months, Rue and I would head home to North Carolina to keep up appearances. We wanted to make sure that we looked successful in the eyes of our contemporaries and didn't want to be too far removed from the state and cities we claimed in our music. On a weekend trip to Durham, I found out that they were shooting a video for Welcome to Durham, a song by Little Brother and Big Daddy Kane, which was the title track of the soundtrack for a movie of the same name. It was a documentary about gang violence in Durham, which was put together by some of my friends, so I felt connected to the project. I managed to steal minimal camera time, but the shoot was like a family reunion of anyone I ever cared about in the local rap scene. I hobnobbed with Fonte and Pooh and noticed they had both began tattooing most of their arms, something I had always wanted to do. But the tattoos that grabbed my attention were the ones on their wrist that said 919. When I saw them, my brain went into a frenzy and I was transparent with my excitement. Holy shit, I said, that is so hot. Thanks, man, Fonte said politely, before I noticed that several members of their crew had Durham's area code conspicuously marked on their wrists as well. I grasped that this could be big. With Little Brother recently signing to Atlantic Records and local rapper MOS signing to Jive, I had envisioned a world where Durham rappers would become a multi-dimensional force in rap music like New York, California, or Atlanta. I told Fonte that I wanted to get the same tattoo and he thought it was a cool idea. I knew I sounded like a fanboy, but I didn't care. I felt comfortable enough with the reputation that I had established as an artist to express my admiration. And if he felt like I was fanning out, then fine, because I was. P.S. He has no memory of this conversation. 
When I left the shoot, I went into Matrix mind mode. I always wanted more tattoos than the stupid one that I had gotten with a fake ID in high school, but nothing so far had made sense. This did. I wanted to link myself to Little Brother because of how much I admired them, and more specifically to Durham. I had always played it safe and I felt like getting a tattoo on my wrist would be the first step to emancipating myself from the vanilla 9 to 5 world that I so despised. That way if I wore a corporate costume, my small bit of ink would slip out and reveal my true, creative self. Perhaps the thought was a bit exaggerated, but psychologically it was good for me. After I worked up the courage to face my fear of needles, I too got 919 tattooed on my right wrist at a shitty tattoo shop on 6th Avenue by West 4th Street. A few weeks later, Rue got 336, High Point's area code put on his. With that, we felt like our fate as creatives was sealed and we had completed step one, non-compliance of corporate conformity. As the music continued to feel right, my flexible day job was starting to die. My boss Mike was the coolest, most accommodating superior imaginable, albeit a terrible business person. Whether it was his poor choice of location or his unrealistic sales goals, it became clear that after just two years in business, he needed to close the store. Though it was only a means to keep my rap career afloat, I had to find another job pretty quickly to be able to focus on my music without financial worries. After a friend of a friend suggested that I'd be good at real estate, I enrolled in a course to get my license. Via Craigslist, I found a job as an agent in Manhattan with the focus on rentals, otherwise known as a broker. The job was strictly commissioned, so Brian, who hired me, agreed to pay me off the books while I collected unemployment benefits. I was decent at it, but barely made any money. The nature of the work meant that I could take off whenever I needed to, and that was helpful. As I effortlessly reestablished myself in the workplace, Melvin was offered a job as an in-house engineer at Daddy's House, a studio owned by Sean Puffy Combs in Midtown. He relocated his family to Queens to pursue his dream of music industry stardom. While I was elated for him, the real thrill came in his promise that the new gig had fringe benefits for me too. Rue and I would come by the studio as his guest, provided Puff wasn't around, and eventually I was able to record two songs in the Biggie room. Mel became close with guys like Yogi from their 90s rap group Crew and Derek D. Angeletti, formerly known as the Mad Rapper. Both of them were in Puff's stable of producers and welcomed young Melvin into the fray. I could tell by the spark in his spirit that Melvin was happy, and I knew that if he made it first, he would take me with him. And as if his newfound position in the music business wasn't enough, having Melvin in Queens also meant that the studio environment where I grew up recording in was now just a subway ride away. Everything seemed to be falling into place and success seemed to be right around the corner. Around the same time, I got the opportunity to model for a fashion magazine called MR. The spread was organized by a friend of ours from college who was making a name for herself in fashion publishing. The idea was to explore the link between fashion and music. Most importantly, I was there as what's-his-name, and not Josh, the wannabe rapper. As far as cool shit went, the magazine photo shoot ranked at the top. I arrived to a few racks of some of the most on-trend fashion pieces I had ever seen. Streetwear was just starting to make a large impact globally, and I was happy to be the face of it, even if it was just for a fashion industry magazine. I flipped through t-shirts and hoodies that fit a bit tighter than I was used to, as well as distressed jeans that I couldn't afford. When I saw the brown and cream snakeskin Adidas form high tops, I nearly lost my mind. When the stylist approached me and we began putting together my look, I felt like a star. 
Before I got in front of the camera, I was stopped by the onset barber to check my shape up to make sure it was tight. Of course I had made sure it was the day before. After a few shots of me trying to figure out how to pose, I landed on the one that featured my freshly healed 919 wrist tattoo. The photographer, also from North Carolina, screamed in delight and told me to hold the pose. I did for the next 15 minutes and the shop ended up in the magazine. My new ink had become the star of the show and my confidence was on 10. Even my body modification choice had proven to be the correct one and I felt like I could do no wrong. I had fully engrossed myself in music. I let Rue convince me to fly home to North Carolina from time to time to do occasional shows and rub elbows with the locals. I had no desire to perform, but I knew he was right. I had all but traded a social life for writing, recording, and then recharging on my couch, which I did every free moment that I could find. I thought this routine made sense, but it was exhausting. Despite the couch time, no amount of vegging out could stop the occasional feelings of doubt from entering my mind. I did have the utmost confidence in my talent. That wasn't the problem. I just couldn't help but to think to myself, what if I stopped right now? Would anybody care? I couldn't lie to myself. After all, they wouldn't. Sure, there'd be a few people who might say, damn, you quit music? That sucks. But ultimately, my pursuit didn't matter, did it? I was just another face in the crowd, even after what felt like a lifetime of hard work. That never sat right with me and often prevented me from falling asleep at night. Some of my experiences, born of my willingness to take chances in connecting with people, even bigwigs, would help in such moments. In high school, for example, Asim and I once jumped up on stage at a root show at the Cat's Cradle. Black Thought shouted out an invitation to the crowd, where the MC's at? We seized the opportunity and rapped while Questlove and the boys provided the background music. After it was done, I asked Black Thought, would you think I was a herb if I gave you my demo tape? He responded with an inviting, nah, come on, man, so I did. Nothing ever came from it, but sometimes when I had doubts, I'd think about his words. I used it as a mantra of sorts, and it would help get me through tough times. I felt like I couldn't disappoint the roots, so I always kept going. But here's one thing that people on the grind never tell you. Sometimes having unrelenting determination and fighting through what you think are negative thoughts actually means internalizing and or ignoring what could be your conscious trying to tell you something. And at this point, working so hard and feeling so close, I wasn't sure which one it was. <laughs> 